theyeshiva.net. It's a great opportunity for this yeshiva. The host, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, world-renowned, who doesn't need introductions, his shurim lead the way of his Torah. He spans all spectrums, spans all crowds, and he brings Kalei all together in one cohesive unit. And I think this uh, really brings together the mission of this yeshiva to empower a generation to become their better selves, the Jewish men and women, and to actualize the greatest Torah learning potential. I'd like to thank today's sponsors. The learning has been sponsored today by Mr. and Mrs. Malkiel and Tova Nechamkin, Lanishmas, his mother, upon her yard site today, Rus Rifka Leah Bas Rilavram, Hashem Hashem Aliyah. And the Shir has specifically been sponsored by a few donors, Dr. Mr. and Dr. and Mrs. Debbie, Elon and Debbie Rizamsky, and two other anonymous donors. It's dedicated to Fu Shalema, our dear friend, Binyamin, Yisrael Chaim Ben Chanita, Shabbat Fu Shalema, Besok Shar, Holy Yisrael. Without any further ado, and as well, Rabbi David Chaim Ben Sar. Okay. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be in your presence. One of the builders or the builder of the Passaic Jewish community. So thank you, and thank you for uh, this schus, uh, privilege and invitation to be here in such an incredible environment, creating a yeshiva from all of you who, uh, I know that the uniqueness of this yeshiva is the people who work become transformed and immersed in Tyra. So today what I want to do with you is take a uh, a topic that's connected to this week, this parsha, the haftar actually of this parsha, and explore it from different perspectives and then try to bring it home and make it relevant to each of our lives. So you gave out the source sheets. Yeah, okay. Okay, so we're going to begin with source sheet number two, page two of the source sheets. The second paragraph we see it says, If you don't have it, that's fine, I'll read it. But if you have it, it'll be nice to uh, follow inside. This is a few lines from a Gemara in Zvachen, of Kufta Zayin, page 116. And um, let me just give context before we see inside. Everybody knows that Pasha Shlach, deals with a fascinating and tragic story of Moshe sending 12 Miraglim, 12 spies to scout the land. What was supposed to be a promising moment and a moment that contained great potential for a bright future turns disastrous because these 12, most of them, 10 of them come back and dissuade the entire nation from entering into the promised land and the great promise becomes in national panic, national hysteria, they weep, let's just go back to Egypt to die there, or at least live as slaves rather than die by the swords of the giants and the mighty armies of the tribes of Canaan. As a result, they would remain in the desert for 40 years. What's interesting is that after 40 years are over, Moshe Rabbeinu passes away, Yehoshua bin Nun now succeeded him as the new Jewish leader, 
They're about to enter into the land of Eretz Yisrael one month after Moshe's death. And this is where Dvarim finishes and Sefer Yahushua begins. To all of our surprise, Yahushua decides to repeat, to repeat the story. And that's where the Haftarah takes over. The beginning of the Haftarah is chapter two of Yahushua. Chapter one deals with Moshe's death and Yahushua assuming the throne, assuming the position of leadership. Chapter two of Yahushua, Joshua is, by Yishlach Yahushua binun minashitim, shnaim anashim miraglim cherish Yeshua sends from the place called Shittim, not 12 spies, but he sends two spies. And he wants them to go survey the land. I'm quoting the opening of Perik Bey's chapter 2 of Yeshua, which is going to be read the Haftarah of the Shabbos. And that's what they do. And the Torah says, Yeshua says, They come to the home of a woman, Isha, a woman, who the Tanakh defines as a Zayna, we'll soon see what that means, Ushma Rachav, her name is Rachav, but Yishkavu Shama, that's where they lay down to rest their bodies. That's the opening of the story of Yahushua sending two spies. There's two very curious things in this opening Pasuk. First of all, he sends Miraglim Cheresh. Cheresh in Moshe Kodesh means deaf, mute. He sent two deaf, mute spies. Is that what we're supposed to understand? Spies who can't speak to anybody and can't hear what's going on. They could see. It's a very strange expression. What does cherish mean? We'll get to that. The next thing is, from all the places they decide to stay, it's base Isha Zaina, the home of a woman who's a Zaina, which Zaina usually denotes, obviously, someone of ill repute involved in promiscuity. Another very strange thing to stay in that home. The story continues that the king of Jericho, the king of Yericho, hears the news. I don't know who sent it out on WhatsApp. <laughs> now, how he heard the news, or he had Ruach HaKadosh. Somebody saw them come in. Somebody saw them go out. There was somebody watching everybody who walked into the house. doesn't say, you got to figure that out on your own. But I guess every generation has its version of WhatsApp. And it's just, uh, it's just uh, expressed in different ways. You know, the old anecdote, they say that the British <laughs> were bragging that they were digging and they found wires and they realized that 300 years ago they already had in Britain some telephone lines. So the Israelis responded that they dug in Sfas and they didn't find any wires, which means 3,000 years ago they already had wireless. <laughs> so you see it here clearly. I just realized the source. The king of Jericho found out that Jews came lachbar. Lachbar means to excavate, to discover the secrets of the land. He sends a message to Rachav, give us the people, give us the men, because they're not innocent. They didn't just come for a nice dinner and a nice schluff or whatever else they want to do. They came for the reason of undermining and conquering the land. What happens now? She takes two men, the two men, we don't know their names from the Haftarah. It says two people, not like the Chumash Shlach, where we know exactly who these spies were. And Vatit she hides him. Another strange expression. It should have been she hides them. She hides him. And she says to the king, yes, they came. They came. I don't know where they are. They came and they left. We all know the story that uh, she took them to the roof. Vatit 
she hides them among branches of flax, pishton, pishtea aces, plants of flax that she had there, and she hides them among those, the plants on the flax on the roof. In the meantime, the king sent out messengers to pursue them because she said they already left the home. She came up to the roof. She says, I know that Hashem has given you the land. Everyone is in awe of you, and everybody has melted in this land before you. We heard what has happened throughout the last 40 years. Nobody has any more ruach in them, in your presence. Nobody has any more ruach. Nobody has spirit. Nobody has energy. Nobody has stamina because of their awe and reverence from you and your God. What happens next? She takes a rope, and with a rope, she lowers them outside of her window because the wall of her home was the fortress of Yericha. The back wall of her home was the Chaima. Her home, so to speak, came out of the wall. So she lowers them from her window. She lowers them down on the other side of the wall. So now they are outside of the city of Yericha. And she says, go to the mountain, hide for three days, they'll stop searching for you, and then you'll go back home. That's when they make a commitment that when they come, she will be completely safe and secure. They will not lay a finger on her and her family, whoever is in that home. They come down from the mountain, they tra- They stay three days, they hide, they travel back to Yahushua, and they tell Yahushua, God has given us the land, and everyone living in that land, their hearts are melted. That's the end of the story. And then Yahushua and the Jewish people enter into Eretz Yisrael. Now that we have this context, let's see the commentary of the Gemara. Says the Gemara, and I quote, Rachav the Zayna tells the messengers of Yahushua, verse 10 of chapter 2, We have heard that Hashem dried the waters of the Red Sea, Umara now asks a question comparing two Psukim Yeshua Perik Hey, Yeshua Perik Bez, but we want to focus on this story. What did Rachav mean when she says nobody has any more Ruach? There's no Ruach standing in any man. Says the Gemara, it's a very strange explanation. They absolutely have no energy. Even the normal process of a human organism during intimacy is gone. These people have lost it. Their energy is depleted. How did she know? How could she make a statement that everybody in this country is overwhelmed? Everybody is startled. Nobody has any more like nobody has any more. Masculine vigor. How does she know? The Omar Mar, the master has taught. Wow. It was not a sar, it was not a minister or a nugget, a man of prominence, of renown, of influence, of affluence in the land of Knaam who did not have relations with Rachav. And the Gemara explains Amru, Bas Rachav was 10 years old when the Jews left Egypt. 40 years Jews in the desert, 
she was involved in promiscuity. At the age of 50, Nizgaira, she converts to Judaism. Amra, she says, May I be forgiven for the reward of the rope, the window, and the flax. Rachav is 10 years old when the Jews leave Egypt. So now she's 50 because they were in the wilderness 40 years. 40 years from the age of 10, she's involved in promiscuity. She's running this motel at the entrance to Canaan and everybody is visiting her. She knows every important person, every interesting person, every charming person, every powerful person in the land. So she could speak about the mood of the people. She knows everyone lost their stamina. Everybody lost their vision. At the age of 50, after this encounter, she converts. And she asks for forgiveness. Says Rashi. What does it mean, forgive me for the rope, for the flax, for the windows? Like Rashi. This is what the Mechilta says, one of the Midrash. Amra, Rebbeinu Shalom, Begimel Dvarim Chatas. Rachav said, I sinned from three ways. Begimel Yimacha. Let me then be forgiven through three ways. Chevam, a rope. Pishtit, flax. Chaloy, a window. Shehoyu menafim oilin eila b'chavol and derech ha-chaloy. V'yoyd, v'gam tamnosam b'pishtit ha-etz. Menafet, all adulterers, used to do it in secrecy. <laughs> they were married or whatever the issue was. They did it in secrecy. So what would they do? She had a rope. She would bring them up through the window so nobody saw them walk in or walk out. When they finished, she let them go down out the window so nobody saw them leave, just like nobody saw them come in. And she also, if necessary, hid them among the piles of flax that she had on her roof. So for her sin, 40 years, she used a rope, she used a window to be able to get them in and out, and she used the flax. And now with these three methods, she saves the shluchim, the emissaries of Yeshua, the two people who came from Yeshua, again, hiding them among the flax so nobody saw them, using the rope, getting them out the window, and thus saving their lives and sending them back to their master, Yehoshua Bidu. That's the Gemara in Zvach. Now, let's try to peer into what our Chazal, what the Chachamim here, are teaching us about the story. Rachel apparently was the most well-connected person in Eretz Yisrael, right? That's what the Gemara clearly says. And that's why once they met her, they didn't have to go anywhere else. She was the person who could give them all the news. She somehow personified, as they would say, the zeitgeist. Anybody still knows what that word means? The zeitgeist of Eretz Canaan. She got it. She encapsulated it. She understood it. Fine. There's another Gemara in Megillah, which complements this Gemara. The Gemara says in Megillah, Dav Tesvav. Arba Noshim Yefiyas Hayu Ba'ilam. Sarah Avigail Rachel and Esther. Four of the most beautiful women in the world were Sarah Avigail, who encounters David Hamalach later in the Tanakh, Esther of the Queen from the Megillah, and finally Rachel. To the point that the Gemara says in Tainas Dafhe Rabitzchak said, 
Kol Ha'omer Rachav Rachav Miyad Nikri. The name of Rachav was so powerful that it would create an immediate reaction. So Reb Nachman says, I say Rachav and nothing happens. So Reb Yitzchak says, no. Biyoida umakira If you knew her. <laughs> to, to, to live a thousand, to thousand, two thousand years later, say Rachav, that's not an issue. If you knew Rachav, if you recognize Rachav, just saying the name triggered an incredible, incredible response. And then, after 50 years, she converts. Why? Because she met these two people. What happens? What did they tell her? It seems like she knew they came to spy. She didn't want her family to be killed. She helped them. What happened? What happened? Rashi says she wants to be forgiven for these three things. What is the meaning of this? These three things. Why do these three factors become so significant? Yes, she used a window. She used a rope. She used flax. Okay, those were technical instruments she used. Somehow that becomes the focus of the story. I mean, she could tell God, forgive me, I saved the Jewish luchim. Forgive me for everything I have done. No, 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 no. It's the flax and it's the window and it's the rope that I used, and now I used it after 40 years, I finally used it once for a good thing, it's all forgiven. Really? How does that work exactly? You want to do tshuva? Do tshuva. Say, I want to do tshuva. Forgive me. I have no problem. No. I use these three things, all forgiven. I'm a chaya. A little strange. How does that work? The whole plot thickens when you open up a Gemara, Masechta Megillah, Daf Yudala, the Gemara says over there, is Gaira, Rachav converted, as the Gemara says here in Zvachim, the Nasva Yahushua. She married none other than Yahushua Binun. She didn't just convert. She converted, wonderful. She's a Jew, like any other Jew. She marries Yahushua Binun. Now that's a far stretch. 40 years, Yahushua was learning Torah by Moshe. Lo Yamish we know what she was doing for 40 years, the Gemara says. After 40 years, she's now 50 years old, she converts, and it's like, we need a Shidduch. Okay, great, Yeshua Binun. <laughs> also seems like a far stretch. We know that Shuva transforms mistakes. We know that a convert, 36 times does the Torah tell us to be sensitive and loving to a convert. There's a letter from the Rambam to a convert who writes to him that there was a rabbi in Shul, it's printed in the Shal Sutruva Sarambam, who, who scorned him, made fun of him. And the Rambam says the only good thing I could say about that rabbi that he was just probably drunk. So he says he was probably drunk, but he should fast and do tshuva and ask you We understand that. Nonetheless, for Rachav to marry Yeshua Benun, what is the meaning of this? And if that's not enough, the Gemara says over there in Megillah that there were eight of the greatest prophets who were Kayanet, and they were all descendants of. Rachav, including Chulda Hanaviyah, including Yirmiyah, including uh, Yecheskel. So you have here the great Yirmiyah Hanavi, Yecheskel Hanavi, Chulda Hanaviyah, one of the great women prophetesses, and they're all descendants of Rachav. There's a ton of Zutta, chapter 22. And Chazal say there, Tshuva is greater than Tfilah. Moshe Davin, he never made it into Eretz Yisrael. Rachav's Tshuva was accepted 
and he continues, why is she called Rachav? Rachav means broad. Laharchiv, harchava, kiyarchiv Hashem alakechav gulcha. Mishum sheinasis, rechava bezachius. She was broad and expansive in her virtues and merits. And seven of the Jewish prophets emerged from her. So how are we to understand this story of Rachav? Who is this lady? What are Chazal trying to teach us when they describe to her a very, apparently a very promiscuous life and then a radical transformation to the other extreme? Because conversion and repenting is one thing. Marrying the leader of the Jewish people, the successor of Moshe Rabbeinu, not Moshe, but the successor of Moshe, is a stretch. The Maharal of Prague, the famous Maharal of Prague was Rabbi Yehuda Leva of Prague, who lived in the 16th century, in the 1500s. He was born in 1520, approximately, and he passed away 1609. He wrote many, many works. One of them is Chidushe Agadis, a commentary on the stories in the Gemara, Chidushe Agadis Lamaral. Here, we put in a quote from the Maharal. His language is usually difficult, sometimes cryptic, philosophical, abstract. You have to learn the Maharal very well to understand that there's usually many layers of depth. <coughs> but he opens up a window to see a deeper dimension of what our sages are trying to teach us with the story about Rachav. And the focus, of course, is those three items. The window, the flax, and the rope. Because, obviously, you know, we read these Gemaras, okay, flax, window, rope, forgive me, but really, what is going on here? Why is this, why are these the three central items in her story of transformation? As I said before, she used these three items for promiscuity. Okay. Now she used these three items to save these two lives. Does that become the key of the story? And that's why she should be forgiven for 40 years of promiscuity. Repentance is always possible, no question. But why not focus on repairing your behavior? That's what tshuva is. I have remorse for the past. And I'm going to change my behavior for the future. That's the definition of tshuva. That's it. As the Rambam discusses in Hilkha's tshuva, what tshuva is. Remorse for the past, resolution for the future, verbal confession, etc. But here, we ignore that. We focus on three incidental items. And what if she didn't have flax? What if she had another plant? What if she had other bushes there, not pishta? And if it was what if it was not a window, it was a door? And what if it was not a rope, if they had another method of getting out of her home? I mean, it happens to be those were the three items. That's why she wants to be forgiven, because of those three items. Let's see the Bahra'u inside. As I said, it's a little complicated reading. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read the whole thing. And then Be'ezir Hashem try to decipher it and see what the Bahra'u is saying. Somebody who engages in promiscuous relationships, it begins with the eyes. 
there's obviously also a deep visceral, emotional reaction, a craving, a crush, an inclination, a desire. And then there is the actual relationship, the actual physical and emotional connection. It begins with my eyes, it continues with my heart, but it results in our connection. The actual deed, whatever it means, the spending time, the relation, the intimacy, the physical, emotional, actual connection, whatever that entails, the fear. The window Rachav speaks about, it's not just the physical window through which they came in and out. The window allows me the ability to see that which is outside of my own room, outside of my own corner, outside of my own home. The ropes then were made out of the fabric of linen. So the pishton is the plant from which ultimately you're going to be able to weave a rope. The rope is what connects. So the piston, the plant, which is the source of the rope, is the thought, the desire, the emotion, the visceral excitement, which ultimately will lead to the actual connection because the rope comes from the plant. The plant is weaved and develops into the rope, which is the connection, but it all begins with my own hearer, with my own internal thoughts and attitudes and experiences. So the Gemara really is mentioning here, the accessories to the sin and the sin. The Gemara says the eyes and the heart are the two the two accessories that allow you to come to the next step. I see and I react. That's within me. The first thing is the seeing, which is the window. That's the first accessory. Then we get to the flax. So we have the window and we have the flax. Those are the two sarsuriaveda. There's the seeing. And then there's the thinking, the pondering, the contemplating, allowing my heart to get excited, all of my inner emotions. And that's why the thoughts and the desire is like the pishtam, the plant of the flats, which is woven into the rope, because even when you actually connect, when you're actually engaged, the desire did not end. On the contrary, the desire and the thoughts are still there because the piston is the beginning of the rope. And even when you have the rope, it's still made out of flax. That hero remains in the action. It's not like it disappears. Gam yeshladas. But there's something else you have to know, says the Mara. Ki piston oyle bad bebad. You have to know how flax grows. Those who are learning Meseches Yuma will soon get there. The Fayanala from Meseches Yuma. The Gemara tells us whenever the Torah uses the word bad, it's referring to the linen fiber, which is the fiber made from flax, flax seed, flax plant. So when it says by Yom Kippur, big day vad, at the beginning of Barshas Achir Mais, that the Kayan Gadol puts on four garments and they're called big day vad, this is linen. 
when it says, This is linen. Why? Vad, what does vad mean? So the Gemara says, The Gemara says as follows. Flax, from which linen is made, is like hemp. In the sense, it doesn't divide into branches. There's no branches. Like a tree divides into branches. Rather, it grows from the ground in stalks. Each stalk is bad. Bad from the word bodot. Boidei. Badad yeshev. Levad. What does levad mean? You're alone. Each stalk is alone, independent. Linen is made from the inner stalk of the plant, but it stands alone. Each one of the seed capsules of the flax plant emerge and grow individually. So the flax, says the Gemara, is a lonely plant. And that's what the word bad means, like levad, like bodet. Says the, says the Mahara. V'chol, actually Rashi over there in Yuma, this Yuma that he's quoting, Rashi says, Hapishton canvas, flax and hemp, they don't branch out like other trees and plants. They have leaves. The linen is made from the inner stalk of the plant. Says the Maharal, anything that is lonely, craves connection because loneliness is intolerable. So I crave attachment. If I'm bodot, I need attachment. I need connection. So when Chazal want to identify something that is longing and yearning for connection, that's the symbol of pishton. If you're not alone, you're not longing for connection. You have it. All trees are already part of a community. <laughs> They're part of, and today when we learn the science of botany more and more, we know how much communication there is not only within a tree itself, but from one tree to another tree, they call it the language of trees, which is quite amazing. The Gemara says in Sukkah of Ches, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai understood the conversations of trees. So we used to read this and say, okay, you know, thank you. What was that supposed to mean? But today they say, there's books, there's, there's websites, there's articles, the conversations of trees. They're talking all day. They don't stop. They're worse than me. They don't stop. Okay. The thing is, they don't talk through words. They talk through chemicals. But they communicate. They don't stop communicating. There's a whole community life. A tree sees that another tree is in danger, right? Because bacteria is attacking it. It exudes chemicals, first of all, to warn the other trees to protect themselves. And suddenly, a few seconds later, all the trees are now protecting themselves. Incredible stuff. So they're in community. Pishton, the Ramal says, is the symbol. It's muchan al It's waiting, it's longing, it's ready for connection. It wants connection. The Maral's words. A person who doesn't have a feminine, a masculine man who doesn't have his feminine counterpart. He's alone. We all long for connection. Thus, the human thoughts and craving for the woman. Just for the, and the woman is searching for the man. This is what Chazal mean when they speak about Pishtun. 
I'm alone and I'm searching for connection. What's the rope? The rope is the connection. What's the function of a rope in the world? The function of a rope is to connect two things. That's what the rope does. We want to connect two things. So you take the animal or whatever it is, and you tie the rope to the animal, and you put the rope on the hook or whatever else it is, the boat, any object. The function of the rope is to create the actual chibur. This, the Maral says, is how you have to understand what the Gemara says. Now, what do we do with this? Interesting stuff here. Connection, attachment, longing, seeing. What, what is the Maral really telling us here? If we think about this and we develop these words, we are privy here to an incredible insight into relationships, into the process of human emotions. And most importantly, what is it that makes an addict an addict? What made Rachav Rachav? And how can an addict heal? And I'm not only talking about the addicts that you know, that one addict that you know in your family or your friends. I'm talking about the addict inside each of us. Because everyone, part of life is the pain of separation. And we all confront the pain of separation. And the pain of separation creates a longing and a yearning. And that's the bodad. And Yom Kippur, you have to confront that. That's the day of tshuva. And that's the uniqueness of Racham. Yom Kippur, you had to wear. Why does the Gemara say, Badad, Bad? Who cares? Why is the Kangadl is lonely on Yom Kippur? He's married. Beisei Zewishta. Kangadl had to be married on Yom Kippur. If he wasn't married, it's a question of the avoid is kosher. Toysvis Yishonim in Yuma brings two shittas. If the Yevid avoid is even kosher on Yom Kippur. If he's not married. Or it's just a chatchila. Okay, it's an interesting question. And yet he had to confront this element of bad, and that's the day of truth. So how do we understand this? So there's three components here. The window is what allows us to look outside and to see outside of ourselves. The rope is what allows us to link two separate entities. Why did Rachav become Rachav? Why for 40 years did she seek and successfully encounter and have relations with Kol Sar Venugget, every person of prominence in Canaan? Rachav is representing a certain type of person. And I would think Yehoshua would run as fast as he can from such a person. She wants to do tshuva great, <laughs> right? But are you going to marry her off to your son? Really, honestly. I mean, 40 years. It's not because I'm mistake, you know, two days, two weeks, three weeks. Today in psychology, there's a very famous condition known as attachment disorder. Attachment disorder today is seen as responsible, not for everything, but for almost everything. <laughs> since you weren't attached, since you did not experience healthy attachment as a child, you're looking for it your whole life. And that longing for attachment creates a very deep sense of insecurity. We need attachment. They didn't always think so. You have to credit John Bowlby, Sue Johnson, 
primarily Joel. They didn't allow, you remember, till the Rabbi Zinger remembers, I don't. But till the early 1960s, you couldn't stay with your child in the hospital. You drop over the child in the hospital, you go home. Even telling your child, I love you, was already too dramatic. Emotional constipation was much healthier. Being lovey, dovey, cuddling with your children. No, no, no. This is going to turn them into dependent, spoiled brats who won't be able to be strong and firm and make decisions and responsibility for their life. Let's not do that. Bowlby fought the psychological establishment successfully. If you could stay today with a child in the hospital, you have to thank him. And he did it through videos of of, uh, baboons showing the anxiety of separation. He showed that it's the other way around. The more healthy attachment you have as a child, the more independent you could become as an adult. And the classic example for that is you have a two-year-old, three-year-old playing in the family room with Lego, and mommy's in the kitchen cutting a cucumber, or good tati on Memorial Day standing in the kitchen and cutting a cucumber, and also not on Memorial Day. And after 10 minutes, your little chayer, your little sada, your little cute angelic David looks up, and mommy's in the kitchen. He looks, goes back down to the Lego, and hopefully there for another two hours, at least for another nine minutes, at least you pray. Right? What happens if he looks up and mommy is not there? He doesn't go back to the Lego. Now he starts searching everywhere. And what if mommy left the house? He's frantic. When he has the security of attachment, he can do his own thing. When we don't have the security of attachment, we're longing for it. We need connection. They used to think the antithesis of addiction was sobriety. Researchers today say the antithesis of addiction is not sobriety. The antithesis of addiction is connection, not sobriety. Proof, everybody has a grandmother who at 86 broke her hip and was in the hospital for three weeks, and they gave her heroin for three weeks. Your 86-year-old bubba should have come home a full-blown addict. I never met an 86-year-old bubba. Not from New York, not from Lakewood, not from Muncie, not from Passaic, and not from Manhattan was an addict. Why? The answer is because she has 19 grandchildren jumping all over her when she comes home. The antithesis of addiction is not sobriety. The antithesis of addiction is connection. Connection is not a mistake. Connection is not a bad thing. Connection is woven into the fabric of humanness. The one who wove it into the fabric of humanness is not random evolution. Evolutionary psychologists say we need connection because the foragers survived with connection. Packs of humans, homo sapiens. From a Jewish perspective, look at Beratius. The first thing Torah says is not good is being alone. I would think if someone would ask a Jew, what's the first thing that Torah says is not good? You would think carbs. Okay, I'm um, sorry. Uh, idolatry, idolatry, yeah, that's not good. That's not the first low tov. The first low tov in the Torah is, you're alone. Loneliness, no connection. I'm alone in the world. Nobody cares for me. I'm not connected to anybody. I don't belong to anybody. 
Nobody validates me. Nobody believes in me. Nobody loves me. I can't trust anybody. The four S's of parenting. Those kids have to feel safe, secure, soothed, and seen. But how can I soothe my child if my child doesn't feel seen, understood, appreciated? But it's not just a three-year-old who needs connection. The 48-year-old needs the same connection. The only difference is we know how to numb it. We know how to escape it. We know how to flee our loneliness. Who wrote about piano man sharing the cup of loneliness, right? But it's better than drinking alone. I'll drink. I'll smoke. I'll go to websites. I'll do whatever I have to do. Addiction. And each of us in our own way, it's the symptom of loneliness, of pishta. I need a relationship. I need somebody to take me out of my self-consciousness, of my solitariness, of my confinement, of my loneliness. Rachav has a big heart. Rachav has a big soul. Rachav. She's a broad neshama. She's a big neshama. Which means she feels her loneliness more acutely. I was once at a Shabbaton in Boca Raton with the unforgettable Rabbi Dr. Abraham Joshua Heschel Tursky. Avram Yeshua Heschel Tursky, Zechariah Levrach, who just passed away a few months ago in Yerushalayim, and had in his tzavah no eulogies, just the nigin hoishia esamecha, which he composed. She uh, was, you probably saw some of the clips. We went a Shabbaton together. So I turned to him, I said, Dr. Tursky, you're a doctor, you've been in this field for 60 years. Can you summarize it for me in 10 seconds? I don't have patience to go learn for 60 years about addiction, recovery, healing, therapy. You know, you paid all the money, you got the degree, you're a doctor, you're out. Just give it to me in 10 seconds. You know, I'm ADHD on steroids. Just give it to me, snap, please. I thought he would shrug me off, you know, let Sanders go to somebody else. Like Shama, you know, threw out the guy, the whole prayer on one leg. Go somewhere else. He looked at me and he said, yeah. He said, the addicts are the most spiritually sensitive people among us. And the self-consciousness kills them. And therefore, they have to numb the pain in much more aggressive ways than anybody else. Because the spiritual longing that they have is deeper than everybody else. He says, that's what you should know when you see an addict. <laughs> okay, I got it. <laughs> Ten seconds. This is what the morale is saying. The trauma that creates loneliness, the deeper the sensitivity, the deeper the loneliness. The deeper the loneliness, the more I need an escape, the more aggressive I'm going to be. And remember, today's escape won't work for tomorrow. Tomorrow I need a greater dose. I need a greater dose to numb me even more. But what's this pain coming from? It could be abuse. It could be molestation. It could be verbal, emotional Abuse, it could be dysfunction. It can also be epigenetics. It could be trauma I got from my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents. It's not, a, it's not even on me today. It could be nature. It could be nurture. And from a spiritual point of view, some souls are traumatized by the separation that happened at the moment of creation. Pre-creation, everything was infinite oneness. Creation comes through a symptom. God withdrew his infinity 
to create a feeling of separateness. Some of us don't care. Pass the pizza. It's fine. Sensitive souls. Existence is trauma. Existence. Confronting existence is trauma. That's pishta. We all experience pishta. What do I do with the pishta? I open a window. I start looking. And at some point, I'm going to throw out a rope. I want to connect. The question is, what am I going to see through my window? And what am I going to connect with? Rachav, who had a big soul, was searching for real connection. And she was never satisfied. 40 years, she checked out literally, no pun intended. She checked out every good guy on the block. And not just on the block, in the whole country. It didn't work. And the reason it didn't work is because it was ultimately not a real connection. I can't fake connection. I could make believe I'm faking it, but how long can you make believe that you're faking it? How long? Some of you remember Zero Mostel. Remember Zero Mostel. He won three Oscars. I wondered who gives their son a name Zero. So I found out his name wasn't Zero. His name was Shmuel Yoel. He grew up in the Bronx. A religious family, a from family. I know some of, I know some of the family. There was somebody in his family who sold him. Shmuel Yoel, the best I garnished, and the best bleiben I garnished. Those words, you're a zero, you're going to remain a zero. He left Yiddishkeit. He became very successful in Hollywood and acting. And he needed a new name. Somehow Broadway didn't like Shmiel Yoel for whatever reason. <laughs> and Samuel Joel also didn't work for the movies. So he chose a name. What was the name? Zero. They asked him, why zero? He said, somebody promised me that I will remain a zero. And I want to show him that I have lived up to his expectations. <laughs> But then I realized something so real and sad. If you're not going to make your child feel special, somebody else will. But it's going to be in a different way. I desperately need connection. I may befriend my alcohol. I may befriend my websites. I may befriend my gambling. I may befriend my drugs. I may befriend my clubs. I may befriend anybody I can meet and somehow have my urges satisfied. But tomorrow, I will need more and more and more because my loneliness has not been dealt with because these are not connections. These are distractions. And distractions don't deal with the void. Distractions simply get me drunk so I don't think about the void for two hours. And then tomorrow, the void is much profounder. Real connections are tough. Real connections are ultimately personified by long-term relationships. Long-term relationships means you got to deal with your husband. I don't mean you. <laughs> and you got to deal with your shrigger. I don't mean you. <laughs> Present company excluded. Real relationships are different. Real relationships mean I have to create space for you. It's not a momentary thing. I have to learn about you. But that's the only way my pishta can be dealt with. After 40 years, Rachav met two people. The Tanakh doesn't say this, but Chazal say. They had names, Kalev and Pinchas. 
Rachav didn't only meet them. Rachav encountered people who had a real connection. It's here where the Arizal takes it one step further. The Arizal has a say for his, Rabbi Menachem Azayah of Fanu was one of the great Kabbalists of the 1600s. He was a student of a student of the Arizal. He's a say called Gilgulei Nishamas, based on the teachings of Rabbi Chaim Vital from the Arizal. And he writes there, Yehoshua came from Ephraim, and he was an incarnation of Yosef. Rachav was a Gilgul of the wife of Potiphar. The wife of Potiphar, her soul was reincarnated into Rachav. Yeshua and Rachav didn't meet here the first time. They met back in Egypt. The wife of Potiphar constantly wanted to be with Yosef. And if there was ever a lonely man, it was Yosef. Did he suffer from attachment disorder? At nine, his mother died, Rachav. At 17, his brothers Brothers are supposed to protect the baby brother. Threw him into a pit. Sold him into slavery. If there was ever a lonely man, it was Yosef. And in that loneliness, there was a woman who wanted him. And the Gemara says in Yuma, it was not long ago on the Daf Yoimi. Daf Lamed Hey, Rabbi Bessa, Daf Lamed Hey, right? The Gemara says, the wife of Poitifa dressed up in different outfits. A few times a day. You can imagine Potiphar's credit cards. <laughs> Every day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, different outfits, like in the Pesach hotels. You know the pressure on the women over there? I come with my kapota, I could be in it for two weeks, two years, nothing. I tell my wife, why does it take two weeks to pack? She says, you don't understand. I don't. <laughs> I don't understand. Okay. One advantage of being a man. Not too many, but one. <laughs> for the basic programs. <laughs> Packing up in the hotel. It takes me five minutes to pack. Well, Poitif had to pay for it. You know, the mice in L.A. the other day, the police called over up a guy. They show him a credit card. They say, is this your credit card? The uncle says, yeah. They say, what happened? He says, it was stolen a year ago. They said, we found it. He said, okay, Baruch Hashem. He said, why didn't you report it? He said, I'll tell you the truth. I was getting the bills every month, and it was much, much less than when my wife had it. So I decided I'll just, I'll just... It's just a joke. It's just a joke. It's not a mess. Poitifa's wife did not stop, and she told Yosef, I'll blind you, I'll oppress you, I'll murder you. And he said, Sorry. She said, I'll reward you. I'll give you the best of the best. You're a slave. You have nothing. Egypt is not a democracy. It's before Lincoln's days. You were a slave for life. You had nothing. Give me a few minutes. Yosef said, no. But then the Gemara says, that one day he came home, Rav and Shmuel, and Yosef surrendered. He couldn't take it anymore. Listen, it's before Matan Torah. He's alone in the world. He's not going to give out a bad reputation on the family. His sisters won't be rejected from seminary because of it. His brothers won't lose good shaduchim for it. His brothers will still be allowed in Brisk and Mir and even in Slabotka and Panovich and Kevin. Because he's in Egypt. Nobody knows. There won't be signs that Shabbos and Shul, Avi, Avi, Satuma. 
There won't be pictures on WhatsApp. He's in Egypt over there. This is what you do. 17-year-old boy. What happens? Says the Gemara, he sees the image of his father in a window. The image of his father in the window. What does that mean? He abstains. What did he see? There was a video of Yaakov in the window. CNN interviewed Yaakov Avinu and they showed it in Egypt. What, what was happening? What was going on? What's this nearer line? Did y- Yosef have attachment? A mother he didn't have. Brothers he didn't have. They were enemies. But he did have attachment. How do I know he had attachment? The Pasuk says about Yosef, Vayimoy, with a shalshalas. Well, what's this three Vayimoy? How long does it say to take to say no? Vayimoy! With a shalshalas. But there's one more time it says Vayimoy previously. We know in Torah when two words, two of the same words are used, they're always connected. We call it Messiah, Zerushav. What's the previous Vayimayim? Same parish. When Yaakov heard that Yosef was devoured, Vayimayim he refused to be comforted. Why? Says Rashi, for a dead person, you could move on. For a living person, there's no closure. Ain Adam. You can't forget a living person. There's no closure. <clears throat> but this also is referring to something spiritually. Spiritually, it was people can give up on Yosef. He's dead. Sometimes there's a child in a pit, in the pit of addiction, in the pit of depression, in the pit of mental or emotional or physical or spiritual illness, and you say, it's forget it. Yaakov said, no, my Yosef is not dead. My Yosef is alive. They said, nah, Yosef was always the black sheep of the family, standing in front of a mirror for hours, never got along with anybody. He's not the mishpucha. He's a shame to the family. Now, you don't know my Yosef. Yaakov would not stop thinking and crying and connecting to Yosef. You know what happens? Hundreds of miles away. In Egypt, Yosef is in the abyss with the wife of Potiphar. You know why he refuses the temptation with Potiphar's wife? Because he has a father who refuses to give up on him. When you have a father or a mother or both who believe in you, you could believe in yourself. The word Vayimayim comes from the word imun, emuna, confidence, trust, faith. Yaakov had a Muna in Yosef. He believed in Yosef hundreds of miles away and empowered Yosef to believe in himself and say, I'm not going to sell my loneliness and fill my void through external promiscuity that will solve nothing. Because your loneliness needs real connection, which can only come through moral, deep, real, authentic relationships. The Torah says when they threw him into the pit, there was no water. Why is that relevant? The empty pit, there's no water. Chazal struggled with this. There was no water. Just say, it's a pit. They threw him into the pit. There was a little water. There was no water. 
there's a very profound message here. You know, in life they say, sometimes you feel that you were buried. But really, you were planted. But in order to be planted, you need water. Did Yosef see himself buried or planted? He was buried, buried alive. But he saw himself as planted. He told his brothers, you didn't sell me. God sent me to provide grain, which is what grows from the earth. There's one problem. You can't grow anything without water. How can Yosef be planted if there was no water? And the answer is the next passage. The next passage, Yaakov did not stop crying. And those tears of Yaakov were what irrigated the pit that allowed Yosef not to be buried, but to be planted. And then transplanted into Egypt and become a source of life for everybody. That's the passage in Shir Hamalos. Hazoirim bedima. Which tears? Yaakov's tears. Birina yiktsayru. Halach yelech uvachay. Noisei meshech hazara. Vayimshechu Yosef min habar. Vayavay virina noisei alu moisav. All the sheaves that they dreamt about that will bow down to Yosef because Yosef never lost connection. What were the clothes that Pari put on on Yosef when he became a viceroy? Big day sheish. Once again, pishton. Linen. Bad. Yosef's loneliness was a loneliness that didn't cause him to lose his identity. It made him aware of what he really needed. He really needed connection. And that connection he cultivated with his soul, with God, and ultimately at the right moment, with Rachav. Yeshua was a reincarnation of Yosef. Rachav was a reincarnation of the wife of Petiphar. The same woman who wanted Yosef. And Rachel for 40 years was looking for that Yosef again and again and again and again and again. And then she meets Pinchas and Kalev. Her life is transformed. She learns about a different type of connection. And when she converts, such a big soul goes directly to Yeshua, but not before she says, it's those three things. Forty years of addiction were transformed in a moment, the moment she realized what the flax was all about, what the window was all about, and what the rope was all about. She didn't escape her past. She redefined her whole experience understanding that the search was a search for a real relationship with your own real connection. And the ultimate source of connection is the connection between man and God. That's why we all long attachment, because we are all a chelik eleka mimal mamish, and you cannot be separated from yourself. Adam searches for chava, chava searches for Adam, that makes up the tzelem aleikim, and all of us search for ourselves, and we search for the ultimate source of oneness, because that's the only thing that's going to satisfy me. I tell my friends, I say, listen, you don't have a choice whether to search or not to search. You're going to be searching for God. The only choice you have is, are you going to distract yourself from the search, or will you embrace what you're really searching for? But that search is never going to end. 
That loneliness is not going to leave you. That anxiety you cannot get rid of because it is what makes you human. It's what makes you great. And in your case, it's what makes you rachav. It's what makes you who you are. The question is, how am I going to satisfy it? What am I going to do with it? How did Kalev and Pinchas teach this to Rachav? So here we come to the last point. And due to uh, time constraints, I'm going to do this in five minutes, even though this is the whole Medrash and Svasemis in the first source sheet. But instead of reading it, I'm just going to encapsulate it very briefly. It's all in that one word, Yeshua sent death spies. Really? Death spies? That's the posture. Shnayim anoshim miraglim cherish. What in the world is that supposed to mean? So if you open up a Medrash Rabbah, the Medrash Rabbah brings two opinions, Reb Nechemya and Reb Shimon ben Yechai. Each opinion is more strange than the other. Reb Nechemya says, Yeshua told them, take earthen pottery with you. Cheres doesn't mean death. It means clay cheres. You become merchants of earthenware. Sell earthenware. People ask you, what brings you to Canaan? What's bringing you to Yericha? Oh, we're selling pottery. Where do you come from? We come from a place where they make pottery. Okay, unbelievable strategy, right? Oh, everybody's suddenly going to believe them. Come, let me tell you the deepest secrets about our army and about our government and about our fortresses. You sell pottery, that's wonderful. Could you sleep in our home for a few weeks? And why earthenware pottery? Why not metal? And why not jewelry? Vos epis clay cheres. Reb Shimon ben Yechoi says, Asu atzmechem chareshen. Make believe you're deaf and mute. So they'll speak in front of you and you'll know all the secrets. Because in front of a deaf person, you're not afraid to speak. I want to ask you the logic. If you're living in Jericho and you're a Canaanite or a Heviite or an Emorite or a Preziite, you know the guys who live in Clifton. <laughs> I mean, they're obsolete, but... If you're one of those people and suddenly you see a guy comes into your garden and you're like, good morning. How are you? And now suddenly you'll spill all the beans in front of him. You got to give him the atomic secrets, right? Why? Because he made himself deaf for two minutes. I mean, <laughs> that's basic espionage 101. Make believe you're deaf and everybody will say everything in front of you. Why wouldn't anybody be suspicious? Hard to understand. So the Svasemes in this piece brings something he heard from his grandfather, the Chidush Yarim. Chidush Yarim was a rich mayor of Ger, a Yitzchak Meir Alp, the first Ger Rebbe, passed away in 1866. He was a student of the Kotzker Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Morgenstern. After the Kotzker's passing, he moved to Gur, not far from Warsaw. And he's known as the Chidush Yarim. He had 12 children, all besides one died in his lifetime. He raised his grandson, the Svasemis, Rabbi Yehuda Ari Leib, who succeeded him a few years after his passing. In the middle, there was Rabbi Henech, but then there was the Svasemis, who passed away in 1905. Svasemis here, Shlach, quotes his grandfather to explain a very enigmatic Medrash Rabbah on the Parsha, which we have here in the source sheets. But I'm going to tell you very briefly the insight. Clay Cheres, earthenware pottery, has a very interesting halacha. We all know there's something called tumah. 
if God forbid somebody dies, everything in the tent under the corpse is tummy, if it's susceptible to tumor. And that would include all metal vessels and all golden vessels, silver, anything metal. It's macabre tumor. It's tummy. Let's say a dead weasel falls into a, a metal bowl or metal spoon. It's tummy. And there's a process of how to cleanse it in a mikvah, etc. There's something unique about clay cheres. Clay cheres metame meavira, which means as follows. Earthenware pottery, you take earth, you take water, mud, you mix it, you put in some straw, you bake it in the, you mold it, you bake it in the oven or in the light, in the sun. If you touch it, if a dead weasel touches it, it's not tame. Fascinating. How does it become tame? If the tumah is suspended in mid-ear, if the dead weasel, for example, goes into the vest, even if it doesn't touch the walls, it's just suspended in mid-ear, it becomes tumah. If it touches it from the outside, it's not tumah. That's why if you have a clay cheres in the tent, in a home where there's a mace, and it's tied, so the tumah can't get into the cavity, it's tar. What's the logic? Why? The answer is as follows. Tumma is always dependent on value. The more use it has for a person, the more spiritual potential it has, the more tumma is attracted to it, like bees attracted to honey. Clay glollin, vessels of dung, or vessels made of earth without even baking in the oven, are so cheap, are so useless, there's no tumma. Clay cheres are very cheap because they're made of earth. They have to be made, you have to mold them, you have to bake them. They're really, really cheap. It's not like gold or silver, any other metal which has some value on its own. Says the Sfasemis, what's the value of clay cheres? Not the keli itself. It's usage. So where does it become tameh? Only in the cavity. Because the value of the clay cheres is not the keli itself. It's what it carries. It's what you could put into it. It's what it's filled with. That's its value. If that's its value, that's what becomes Tumah. Touching the wall of it, that's not susceptible to Tumah. The wall is nothing. The keli is a value, valueless. It's what it carries. It's what you could put into it. It's what it contains. Tashmisha. That's the Klecheres. So Yeshua told Yeshua and Kalev, you have to asu atzmechem, the language is asu atzmechem kederei cheresh. Make yourself earthenware powder. So we explain, sell it. He says, no. He's talking to them about themselves. Whenever you go on a big and daring mission, there's only one way to be successful. And the way to be successful is to be like a clay cheres, because God made Adam off from in Hadama. So each of us is a clay cheres. What does it mean I'm a clay cheres? What does it mean practically? It means that I remember that my greatest value is not just my eye. My greatest value is that I am an ambassador. I am a channel. I am an ambassador of Hashem in this world. The Gemara says in Kedushin Memalu for Shliach represents the one who sent him. So therefore, I am actually divine. The moment you redefine yourself in terms of a Shliach, now you operate on a different level. My ego is taken out of the picture. It's not personal. I recognize also that at my core, I'm indestructible. I'm full of confidence, wholesomeness, and joy. 
If I look at myself in the mirror, I have trauma, I have fear, I have insecurity, I have flaws. Everybody deals with stuff. If I can identify myself, my real self, as what? As as a channel for infinity, as an ambassador of the Rebbeinu Shalom in this world, then nobody can beat you. <laughs> then there's no insecurity anymore. All insecurity comes from me talking about me, about who I am and who I'm not, my busy self-conscious, that repetitive voice in your brain, do they have it in Passaic? Where you talk to yourself a whole time and you're like your own narrator telling yourself who you are, who you are. You may believe you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, that's fine, Baruch Hashem. But the moment I can redefine myself as a channel, take myself, my ego out of the picture, it's very different. So you come home and your teenage girl or your teenage boy tells you something you really don't like hearing. What's the worst thing you can do? The worst thing you can do is take it personal. Starting up with me, this chutzpah, Intolerable. Get out of my house. Go find yourself another father. What just happened? What just happened is my own loneliness, my own pain was triggered. And I responded from a place of deep pain. And I ru- I'm ruining the relationship. But what if I could become a klecheris? What if I could say, I don't own this child. This child is God's child. And Hashem gave me a shlichus, a mission to help polish this diamond. So now the question is, what does Hashem want from me at this moment? What does this child need? That's a very different question. And you'll see your response will be a very different response. I took my own insecurity, my own pain, my own loneliness, my own anxiety, my own stress out of the picture. Not because it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. I'm human. I have an ego. I'm very insecure. I need nachas. I need my children to be able to give me nachas. But that's all human fiction. That's the idea that human, that children were created to give their father and mother nachas. It's something we love, we would love, but that's not true. <laughs> you don't own your child. That's the story. That's why we say that keda every day. Why do we say that keda every day? God told Avram, Yitzchak is not owned by you. He's owned by me. So Avram says, okay, take him back. God says, no, you take him back, but you don't own him. Okay, so take him, God's. Right? Take him. He says, no, you're my messenger. <laughs> I'm giving Yitzhak to you as my shliach, but you don't own him. You don't have to own him. Now, Jewish mothers and fathers have a hard time hearing this. I apologize. But it takes off a lot of pressure. The Akeda is one of the most liberating moments in Jewish history. You never thought of it that way, right? The Akeda looks like this horrible story of like, kill your son. Bob Dylan has a song, Kill Your Son. Really, that Kade is very liberating. That Kade is basically saying, it's not you. You're not responsible. <laughs> Get rid of mom's guilt. It's not your child. It's Hashem's child. You're a clay cheres. I'm a channel. Hashem put this soul into my home because he trusted that my wife and I will be able to do what he wants in order to polish this diamond. And that's my avoider. Do it with simcha, do it with dvekas, do it with attentiveness. If you made mistakes, learn from your mistakes. But don't make it personal. Every mission in the world, when you have this approach, unbeatable. There's one more thing you got to do. You got to be deaf. 
You got to be deaf. If you ain't deaf, nothing is happening. Because there was nobody who ever did anything worthwhile in the world who was not criticized. If you're not criticized, get a new career. If you're not being criticized, if somebody is not telling you you're responsible for the destruction of the planet, you're probably not doing the right thing. Every great person who ever did anything, there were always the naysayers who told them, you're a dreamer, you're a mishugana, you're a fanatic, you're an extremist, you're a nudjob, you're a shaita. Bring it on. You want to get feedback from people who really care about you and people who want you to flex your muscles and be successful. But if you're going to get every feedback in the world, then you're going to take it. You're doing this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, that wrong, that wrong. For people who won't lose sleep over you or your children, just be deaf. <laughs> just learn how to be deaf. You want to be a miracle? You want to be shluchah shlodem kamaisai? You have to know who to listen to and what to listen to. You want to give me real constructive criticism because you want the success. I'm in. You have to cherish constructive criticism. It's the only thing that will make you grow. But you just want to put down. You just want to find the floor. You want to find the You want to tell me what I'm doing wrong. Mama knows best. Daddy knows best. Listen to your own soul. Sometimes when it comes to children, every therapist will give you different advice. Mama and Tata sometimes know best. Learn what people have to say. Be introspective. But you have to sometimes be deaf. If not, you won't be successful. When Rachav met these two spies, she learned this art. Knowing what to listen in her heart to and what not to listen in her heart to. She also realized that the ultimate solution for loneliness is not going deeper into your insecurity but realizing that you're a channel of infinity and therefore you could connect. The moment Rachav discovers these two things, she can experience a transformation and ultimately change her whole life and become the spouse of Yeshua Benun. Let me conclude with a little story. The truth is, when you think about this, the task of this yeshiva is really this. That's what the Svasama says at the end. He says, every person is a miragal. Every person is a shliach whose soul was sent down into this world. And the only way you can be successful, you're going to find everywhere challenges and toxicity. And you have to be able to become a klecheres, a channel, an ambassador. And no, I am an ambassador of love, light, light, hope, healing, authenticity, wisdom and redemption. I also have to be able to know what to be deaf to, and then you can succeed. And not only succeed, but even transform a Rachav who's really longing for that type of awareness, that type of connection, that type of relationship. This is a story that I wanted to leave you with. And uh, in my mind, it really captures the spirit of the Jewish people. It just happened last week. Somebody sent me a clip. There's a kibbutz. It's the closest kibbutz to Gaza. The closest kibbutz to Gaza is called Kerem Shalom, the vineyard of peace. This kibbutz, if they send a rocket from Gaza, it takes 
four seconds to land. This is not a minute. This is not 30 seconds. You have four seconds. That's how close it is. Ashkelon is 13 miles from Gaza. It's further. This kibbutz is the closest to Gaza. During the last war of Hamas against Israel, 15 rockets landed in this kibbutz. One five. Of the more than four to 4,000 rockets, 15 landed there. Why did they land there? Either the Iron Dome, which has a radar that detects where the missile, where the rocket is going to land, detected that the rockets are going to land in open land, not populated, so they just let it go. Or maybe it was undetected. But the bottom line is that 15 rockets landed there. All of them created, what are they called? Craters, right? They created, I saw the pictures, huge craters in the ground. These were serious rockets. And the mummers, huge, like pits, caves. Last week, the children of Kerem Shalom came to these craters and they planted trees in all of them. And I was looking at the pictures and I was thinking to myself, wow, in one picture captures two opposite life philosophies. One whose intention is to sow as much damage and death as possible on civilians. And the other one who takes crisis and turns it into opportunity. They asked the children, why are you planting trees here? They said, oh, we don't have to do the digging. The Hamas already (laughs) did the digging for us. And I'm like, wow. Wow. What an approach. The Hamas did the digging for us. They created the craters. All we need to do is plant trees. Taking destruction, literally, and turning it into new life, new trees, new, new vegetation, new growth. It reminds me when Sarah Schneer founded Beis Yaakov in 1917. Of course, there were Jews who were very opposed to having girls' schools. The first Beis Yaakov was in Krakow. A few years ago, I went to visit it. And she had her first classroom. And of course, some people came and threw rocks through the windows. And the rocks landed in the classroom. And Sarah Schneer, without bleaking, picked up one of those rocks. And she says, so here we have our rock for the Chanukas Evan Hapina, for the groundbreaking of the next Beis Yaakov that we're going to begin building tomorrow. <laughs> Rabbi Yashaber Soloveitchik Zatzal once said, the Gemara says in Menachis Dav Chavtes, about Rabbi Akiva, I'll call koitz v'koitz, asid lidroish tilei tilem shalalachis. Hashem told Moshe that Rabbi Akiva would learn from each koitz, from each little line on the Sefer Torah, the Shatnas gets, the Tagim, those little thorns, he would learn mounds of halachas. It's a very unique expression. Kites. Kites means a thorn. So he said, Rabbi Akiva experienced like nobody else the thorns of Roman oppression on his own flesh, literally, as the Gemara says at the end of Brachas. What was his response? I'll call kites for kites. Every thorn that perforated Rabbi Akiva's skin and the skin of Kleiser, Rabbi Akiva said, Every thorn he utilized as a springboard, as a catalyst for rejuvenation, as in JEW, for renaissance, for renewal. 
for transformation. And in many ways, this is the secret of our survival. Turn crisis into opportunity. Take mashber. What is the word mashber in Hebrew? A breakdown. But mashber has another meaning in Hebrew. It's a birthing stool. It's a birthing stool. Every mashber is also the birth of a new reality. That's the fact. That's the reason. I was uh, once speaking near uh, Brooklyn College. It was Hanukkah time. So the president of Brooklyn College, an Irish woman, wanted to know why Jews eat so many donuts and latkes <laughs> and Hanukkah. So the classic answer that you heard in yeshiva was because the oil burned for eight days. But I didn't think that would work so much with a Gentile. Because the oil didn't burn, it was supposed to burn for one day. And the oil burned for eight days. And the Beis wants to know exactly why eight. So therefore we take donuts and latkes and we leave them in the oil for eight months. And we eat them nonstop. So for Jews, that's like Mamash Seichel Hayashar. Like that's what you're supposed to think. Makes sense, of course. But you know, for, for our Irish friends, I wasn't sure it's going to work. So I needed a more like pshat reason. So I said it's Pashat. Hanukkah represents the victory of the Jews over the Greeks. The Greeks were into looks, fashion, Olympics, and athleticism. So Hanukkah, we eat tons and tons of these foods to make sure that we will never, ever look like them. (laughs) But then I realized that it's something deeper. I said... Because we don't only like to write obituaries for our enemies. That's, that's not a Jewish thing. What we really want to do is we want to eat them. <laughs> that's what we do. So we took paroi and we turned them into a matzah ball. The most delicious Jewish food, a knedel. It's all paroi. We took haman and we turned them into a hamantash, the most delicious Jewish carb. We took Antiochus and we turned them into a latka. We don't only defeat our enemies. We want them to add to our cholesterol and our fat. Like, where is this fat coming from? Hama, para, Antiochus. It's exactly what we do. That's our way. Every kites becomes a source of tile tilem shavalachas. And that's what Rachel understood at that moment. She lived 40 years of dysfunction, of promiscuity. She could have looked in the mirror and said, my life was wasted. She said something much deeper than that. I'm going to take all my experiences and transform them into a springboard for the greatest spiritual rejuvenation because she understood that what, what was at the core of all of her issues was longing. It was yearning. It was not evil at its core. So she didn't just run away from her previous life. She redefined, she transformed her previous life into a whole new reality, a reality of oneness. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.